this Saturday, June 7th, we're going to be doing a workshop for this reaching out to the nations that Kevin and Rory had brought back with them from Alabama. Uh, we're going to be going through some of the information that was laid out, some of the call to us as to what it looks like to fulfill the commission to reach out to the nations. It's going to be um, in depth. There's going to be time for questions and answers. There will be a laying out of what it's going to look like to us as Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We do urge everyone, uh, no matter really what your schedules look like, make time. This is going to take um, extreme precedence as to the direction that this church is going to be going. So be there. It, it'll be important. As we were singing worship this morning, as we had an opportunity uh, to just lift our hands and, and give God glory and we were looking at the video of the people in Afghanistan. You know, what, what came to my heart, and I want to just leave you guys with this, what came to my heart was every single child and individual that you saw up there, including us, were created in the image of God to give God glory. There are some individuals that are going to be confronted with, and we know this, that are going to be confronted with the gospel and that are going to refuse that will walk away and say, no, that's not me. I am not going to be um, a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to claim that. I'm going to follow my way. Um, there are some of the nations in this world that were created in the image of Christ to give him glory that have never seen or heard the gospel. What a shame it is, and the, the, the heartstrings that, that, that were tugged at my heart, you guys, was what a shame to see some of these people um, who have never, ever given, been given the opportunity to hear the grace of God by and through his son, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross and resurrecting victorious over sin and death to give them life. What a shame for them to live through their life and end up where we don't want them to end up, end up entering through the gates of hell because they never knew. We were all created in the image of God for his glory. It's our job and our calling to speak forth the gospel to all nations. As Paul um, was, was given in a vision, and I've said this before, but it's so apropos, I guess, when Paul was given a vision in Corinth, Christ spoke to him in, in that place, just like us, who have been called to follow and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And he said, be not afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Those are the people in Corinth that weren't reached yet. How many people in the nations out there have not been reached yet? And yet we've been called and touched, you know, our heart have been touched and give, been given the, the gospel to share. So this Saturday, you guys, as we have this workshop, 
let's, let's put a priority on that that God has in the gospel. And let's come and, and learn from that. Thank you. Lori? I would just add to that that uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, which uh, it was Memorial Day weekend, it's kind of a rough week to like lay out like this big vision for our church and then half the church isn't here for it. So that's kind of on us and that's the calendar and the way things work. So, uh, but praise the Lord, we do have a recording of it uh, where we shared um, the history of our church uh, in regards to discipleship making since 2001 up till today. And uh, that was probably the first 10 minutes or so of uh, the morning last week was just a, a history that was just pretty powerful to see God's hand uh, even leading us to Alabama and, uh, and then just the vision coming back from that, uh, as well as uh, some scriptural teachings on what we learned and, um, and then a neat new vision uh, and partnership that God seems to have opened a door up with um, a missionary in Nepal. And so uh, if you weren't here, just would plead with you <laughs> to uh, get online as soon as possible, if it's this afternoon, uh, or get on your phone, download the podcast from last week, and listen to that, um, because that'll probably help you understand why do I need to be here next Saturday, because um, we're going to lay it out even more than we did last week, um, but, but you won't get everything. There's also three videos that we showed last week, and we put the links to those. Uh, in the media player online. And so you, after each elder speaks, you can listen to the first video, the second video, the third video, and, um, and it kind of goes along with what we were talking about. So if you have any questions about that, come talk to me, but we just urge you uh, to listen to last week's teaching if you weren't here. It'll help kind of make a lot more sense of what's happening in our church right now, which is exciting stuff. Um, so anyways, we are in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, looks like we'll have probably uh, this week and another week uh, going through just some of these these final names, these final principles, uh, these final exhortations, as Paul says goodbye uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. And um, today's sermon title is, uh, You Must, You Must, Five Practical Exhortations. And so uh, before we get into this, let's pray. Lord, we realize that uh, in our culture and in the church today, there's a lot of practical books out there. There's a lot of seminars that tell us you must or be a better dad, be a better wife, be a better husband. You must do all this stuff. And yet, Lord, without uh, the motivation of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done what he did for us that's put into our account without the, um, without the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to accomplish these things. Lord, we're, we're in a horrible place to even have a sermon title that says, you must. Uh, and yet, Lord, there's a reason why. And there's the ability for these imperatives. And so I pray that your spirit would speak to our church, that you would protect me from preaching any sort of moralism or self-help sermon today, but Lord, that you would keep guiding us to the cross, to Jesus, to the grand plan of your glory among all the nations. And uh, Lord, just let today be uh, an example of your demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. In Jesus' name, amen. Two verses today. Think you can handle it? <laughs> 
Well, that's all we're reading in 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to springboard from there. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Five practical exhortations. You must do statements. The closing of this book has some incredible, practical, short, sharp, as Leon Morris says, exhortations in the midst of a bunch of names and other greetings. If you've read the Bible much, you're familiar with closing chapters, aren't you? These exhortations are going to come to us in rapid fire bursts, which Morris also dubbed compelling imperatives compelling must-dos. Now, this is all after just a whole book of doctrine and theology and rebukes and corrections. And then, you know, 15 chapters culminates there in chapter 15 with the gospel and, and that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he rose on the third day according to the scriptures and then a whole chapter of the proof of the resurrection against all arguments and all questions we're talking doctrine people chapter 15 is doctrine the resurrection the foundation of christianity and after doctrine comes practical things so often as charles spurgeon says thus should the practical ever flow from the doctrinal, like wine from the clusters of the grape. Let us never reckon that we have learned a doctrine till we have seen its bearing upon our lives. And so as we have studied the, we did six weeks studying the resurrection. But what does that mean? When you remember right after chapter uh, 15, at the end in verse 58, he says, therefore, Because of the resurrection, because of the gospel, the cross, the death, the atonement, the resurrection, the victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be something. Do something. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so as we get into these just more, more practical things, more imperatives. You remember right after that was an exhortation to generosity. And on the first day of the week, you come and you store up things for the work of the ministry, resources, money, bring them to the local church treasure house. And then another week we studied, man, there's an open door for the ministry, ministry that flows out of the gospel. And now these rapid fire bursts, five exhortations just... Man, it's, it's crazy. It's in the middle of all these names. It's in the middle of traveling plans, you know? And, and then you get these exhortations that seem almost out of place, but, but they all are in light of the gospel. Now, in verse 13 and 14, you might remember last year in the spring, we went over to Calvary Chapel Corvallis to a Ken Graves conference. Does anybody remember us going to that? Or does anybody remember the videos shown? Ken Graves is Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine. And this guy's like a man's man. He's a Viking. He has a beard and a big flannel shirt, you know, that he wears long underwear underneath. I mean, who does that but the bounty man, you know? I don't know. But he's got this voice like this. And he calls you to be a man. 
And that's how he talks. I'm not like exaggerating. Does anybody remember the videos that we've shown? These verses are best read in a Ken Graves voice. Watch. Stand fast. Be courageous. All right. Be bold. One translation, act like men. That's Ken Graves, all right? These verses are best read in a Ken Graves voice. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. In a sense, each of these exhortations means the same thing. It's simply said in a different way. First of all, watch. Be watchful. The verb here is in the present active imperative, as, is all the, as are all the verbs in this verse, which means that Paul is not speaking of a momentary attitude of watching, but he's speaking of a continuing state. This word watch, as Leon Morris says, denotes more than the mere absence of sleep. It implies a determined effort at wakefulness that keeps going and going and going. It's in the present, active, imperative mood. The J.B. Phillips translation says, be on your guard. The NASB says, be on the alert and keep alert. Most of us have seen photographs of the most famous military guards in the world, arguably. They're in England, around the palace. If you've ever seen the changing of these guards in person, you would have pressed your nose up and through those gigantic wrought iron gates and looked at the guards who are well-trained, who stand guarding Buckingham Palace. They look straight in front of themselves. They are immaculate. They are unflinching. Their gaze is straightforward, and they clearly understand what it is they're to be doing. They are guards, and they are guarding. And anybody looking from the vantage point on the street would say, they've got it under control. At least, they thought that until a few years ago. The queen had awakened in the night to find a gentleman sitting on the end of her bed, and it wasn't Prince Philip. Some character had taken himself into the palace, throughout the palace, found the queen's bedroom, and was sitting on, the middle of, on her bed in the middle of the night, wanting to engage her in a conversation. This all points to the fact that, while from the outside, it appeared as if these guards had it all under control, the issue was down pat of being watchful. It was simply a cover for the patent ineffectiveness of their security system. Many of us have a religious appearance on the outside that we are watching. But things are getting by. How's your guard? Husbands, fathers, mothers, church ministry leaders, watch. Don't let anything get by. How's your private life? How's your family? Do you look at a posture of attention and gazing forward, but really you're snoring underneath a big fur cap? The Corinthians lived in a carnal culture much as we do today. 
A Christian is always in danger, Matthew Henry wrote, and therefore, therefore should ever be on the watch. The Corinthians were in manifest danger upon many accounts. Their feuds ran high. Their irregularities among them were very great. There were deceivers who got among them, who endeavored to corrupt the faith in the most important articles, those without which the practice of virtue and piety could never subsist. And this Puritan preacher from the 1500s says, and surely in such dangerous circumstances, it was their concern to watch. Note, if a Christian would be secure, he must be on his guard. And the more his danger, the greater vigilance is needful in his security. Now, Jesus himself spoke of being watchful, did he not? He said, be watchful for my return in the midst of such a culture. Even, and I was encouraged to read Leon Morris who said, this watch is often used of the second coming of Jesus. And this may well be what is in mind here in 1 Corinthians 16. And so as we look in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, the Olivet Discourse, 24 and 25 of Matthew, the disciples had asked, Lord, when will your coming be? And what will be the signs of your time? And that gets Jesus into a two-chapter kind of telescoping view of the end times and the rapture of the church and the uh, tribulation period and the second coming. And he says in Matthew 24, 36 through 44, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. As the days of Noah were, you might say the days of Corinth, the days of America 2014, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be on the guard, keep alert, be watchful. And multiple times in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus comes back to telling us, watch because we forget to watch don't we we start watching other things and that takes our minds on the chief thing we should be watching Matthew 25 13 all of it discourse watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour when the son of man is coming Mark's version of it in 1332 of the day and hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father take heed watch and pray we're going to see watching and praying go hand to hand in even the New Testament. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, in the morning, 
lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. You think Jesus is just kind of getting a little carried away with this watch thing? Well, wait till you get to verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch. Be on your guard. Be looking up. Be a faithful servant. Your master is coming back. Are you serving in the capacity that he's left you a stewardship? Don't let your guard down. In Luke chapter 12, this is not the Olivet Discourse, but Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, he'll find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if, if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Guys, don't get tired of watching. If the master comes in the second watch, you be watching. Third watch, getting tired of it, growing weary, stand up straight, watch. Jesus says in Matthew 26, watch and pray. He tells the disciples there in the garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke 21, this is all of a discourse. This is speaking of the tribulation period. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the son of man. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8, speaking of the day of the Lord, we're talking rapture of the church, tribulation period, second coming, day of the Lord, end time stuff. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Watch. Watch for the Lord to come. Watch out, because it's, 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 he knows there's but little time. And he's walking around seeking whom he may devour. Our whole future this week in terms of our effective Christian living starts and ends with Sunday evening, Monday morning issues of guardedness going throughout the rest of the week on guard. And we know this from experience, don't we? Whether it's in our own lives or people close to us, one unguarded moment could leave you like Peter denying the Lord. One unguarded moment could sell your marriage down the river. One unguarded moment, you could do something in your business that could ruin your career. One unguarded moment and you could send your children into chaos. Watch. One man said, I am at my most vulnerable when I am unaware of how vulnerable I really am. That's when Paul says a few chapters ago in 1 Corinthians, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Watch. 
Jesus says in Revelation chapter three in his letter to the churches, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I've not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you've received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I like how he says, this is Jesus saying it, strengthen the things that remain. Praise God that by his grace, he has brought you here this morning to hear such a message telling you, don't be thinking of other people right now. You're here because of God's sovereignty and he wants you to know, church, that you need to watch. You need to look at the things that God is doing in your life by his grace and you need to strengthen those things that remain so that you can stand. The elders are told to watch in Acts chapter 20 to watch out for savage wolves that would creep in amongst their midst. We're told in the New Testament to be watchful in our prayers. Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So our prayers are to be open-eyed prayers. As Colossians 4, 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant. That means to be watchful, to be open-eyed in your prayers with thanksgiving. That means be looking at how to be praying. Be watchful with that Ephesians word, with perseverance and your prayers for the saints. It's not time to sleep, church. It's not time to sleep. I fear you may be slumbering. 1 Peter 4, 7 has this cool combination in it of being watchful for his return as well as being uh, watchful in our prayer lives, that the end is coming, so pray watchfully, 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Real quick question, does this mark your prayer life? Are you a Christian here today? What is your prayer life? Would you say my prayer life is one marked by watchfulness, vigilance, perseverance, supplicating in the spirit. Is that something that marks you, Christian? Perhaps living in the end times, is this your prayer life? As we speak of his return and being watchful for it, we want to note within this Olivet Discourse, this end times dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples, we see the purpose of his return. And if I were to ask you real quick, what's the purpose of Jesus's return? I bet the majority of answers here, as well as my tendency, is to say his return is to come and just bring deliverance to me. It's to like just finally redeem what he's purchased. And, and, and it would be very truthful, but very me-centered, missing out on that chief end we discussed last week, which is what? The glory of God. And so many of us have an eschatology that is very self-centered for, you know, for reasons that just are incomplete in truth. He's coming for his bride, and I'm his bride, so I'm that bride that's like ready, all right? He's coming to maybe, maybe save us out of the tribulation if that's your eschatology. He's coming to protect me from wrath, and it's me, 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 me. And we forget that no, 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 that's all good, but it's for his glory. 
that's it. That's everything else which is good and beautiful and is his grace. It all trembles to an eruption of for his glory. He comes back to redeem his bride for his glory. He comes back to protect us out of his wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejected world for his glory. He comes back in his second coming with in his second coming with, with horses and with all the saints, as Zechariah and Jude tell us. And it's what it's for what purpose? It's for his glory. And in the Olivet Discourse, he tells us that we are to watch for his return, for the purpose of his glory among the nations. Matthew 24, 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Do you remember our vision last week that God has shown us that we are to make disciples who make disciples of all nations because the nations are to worship the king. And even in the second coming of the Christ, it is for the purpose of all nations, even the nations that were going in Armageddon to war against Jerusalem, the purpose is that every tribe will see him and they will worship. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether they liked him or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, this end times book, apocalyptic book, behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes that I've been praying for in my new app on my phone or on the Operation World website that show us thousands upon thousands upon thousands to the 3,000 people group mark or more who have no clue of who Jesus is right now. And we're looking out the window saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I believe in the imminent return of Jesus. But I also see he hasn't come yet. And he left us with a mission. And the mission isn't accomplished. These people will know him and they will worship him, whether they've received him or not, for his glory. Matthew 25, 31, this Olivet Discourse, this, this Jesus' explanation of end times, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, by the way, he's going to come in glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. What will that be like? I'll tell you what, Rory's going to fade away, away real quick. This is the one who before his face, all heaven and earth fade away. This is the one before whom we come with rewards and crowns and diadems. And then we see him and we go, whoosh. It goes before you, Lord. 
all glory in heaven and earth and under the earth belong to you. What is the purpose of his return? What is the purpose of the end? His glory. There's a lot of other beautiful, wonderful things, heavenly things. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has been revealed to the heart of men, but by the Holy Spirit in some of us, as the First Corinthians passage says, there's going to be wonderful things, but the chief end isn't that we learn how to ride a unicorn in heaven while we're snowboarding or parasailing. That is like some Americanized mumbo-jumbo from the pit of hell, I might add. The chief end of it all is his exaltation among every tribe, tongue, in the highest mountain of Nepal or the deepest desert of Sudan. He will be worshipped by that tongue. Zechariah 14 is an incredible eschatological prophecy from Zechariah. You got to read it because it tells of the second coming and the devouring of the evil ones and they're melting away just before the Lord and he stands in victory on the Mount of Olives and as he stands on the Mount of Olives conquering his enemies, the Mount of Olives splits in half and a giant river comes shooting up out of the Mount of Olives going over to the Mediterranean Sea in the west and going over to the Dead Sea in the east and bringing life to this region that is desert and dead and it brings life And scientific study has shown that there is a massive water source waiting to erupt underneath the Mount of Olives. And you wonder why, because prophecy says one day, whoosh. And as he stands there on the Mount of Olives, he's come back as the angel said he would. As he ascended, so will he return. And on that day, Zechariah 14, 9 says, uh, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one. And his name won. Zechariah 14, 16 through 18. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. So even as there's people in these armies that are coming to attack, there's there's some, I I guess, that, that survived that. And the sheep and the goats judgments takes place. And man, you were, you were against a man like, hey, you can hang out a little while here and see what's going to happen. These people were going to come and they're going to worship before the Lord of hosts. Worshiping before the king. It's worship as the end. Verse 17 of that Zechariah passage says, And it shall be whichever of the families of the earth does not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king. The Lord will come up. Uh, excuse me, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. What's the purpose of our eschatology studying? It doesn't end on me. It ends on him and his glory. Don't let that get old. It's why we were created. And in that Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Seven billion people on this earth. Over three billion are unreached, meaning there's less than 2% Christian in those people groups. We're not talking nations. We're talking tribes, people groups. Half of that Three billion are called unengaged, unreached people, which means there are no efforts whatsoever to get the gospel to them. And here we are, living the Christian spin on the American dream, myself included. 
just looking out the window like, come Lord Jesus, let's make a few disciples here so that they go with us when the, when the sound of the trumpet, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus is amen, right? But he says, hey, got a mission for you. Keep going until I come, keep going. So I look to the sky for his imminent return. I'm watchful, but I also realize that I'm on mission and you're on mission. One way or another, we're part of this grand plan. And as George Ladd said, and I'll quote him again from last week, I cannot possibly define who all the nations are, but I don't need to know. I only need to know one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. My responsibility is not to insist on defining the term. My responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. How'd you get all of that from watch? (laughs) Because Jesus said, watch. And in the midst of all of his watching, watch, 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 watch. The gospel will be preached among every nation. And then the end will come. The second exhortation Stand fast in the faith. Stand firm, persevere. Again, present active imperative. It is necessary right now for you to keep your ground. It shows us the nature and necessity of Christian stability, as Morris will say, a stability that was distressingly absent from the Corinthians. Now you'll notice there's this stand fast, in the faith. We're told by Paul what it is we're to be standing fast in. And it not only modifies that stand fast, but it's the key to every other exhortation here. You might say, be watchful concerning the faith, be courageous or brave concerning the faith, be strong concerning the faith, stand fast concerning the faith. There's much to distract us and lead us away from the gospel which we have received. Temptations from every direction are thrown to us in the forms of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There are varieties of scholars and professors, authors, poets, talk show hosts, whose aim is to dissuade us from the hope we have found in Christ. These temptations to draw us back were in Paul's day and they are in ours. No longer is it primarily the college students who recently left home who are in the crosshairs of the enemies. But it is the wife, the husband, the stay-at-home mom, the person with all the internet connections, radio or TV. Paul's exhortation to them and to us are this. Stand fast in the faith. The Corinthians were facing all kinds of false teachers who wanted to dilute the truth. And Paul knew that the Corinthians must have a solid grasp on the faith. Do you have a solid grasp on the faith? Charles Hodge says, Do not consider every point of doctrine an open question. Matters of faith, doctrines for which you have a clear revelation of God, such as the doctrine of the resurrection, for example, are to be considered settled. And among Christians are no longer matters of dispute. 
There are doctrines embraced in the creeds of Orthodox churches, and these are so clearly taught in Scripture that it is not only useless but hurtful to be always calling them into question. Spurgeon says concerning this, Know what you know, and knowing it, cling to it. Hold fast that form of sound doctrine. Do not be as some are of doubtful mind who know nothing and even dare say that nothing can be known. Where is the love of truth? Where soon will be the common honesty? In these days with some men, in religious matters, black is white and all other things are whichever color they happen to be in your own eye, the color being nowhere but in your eye. Theology being only a set of opinions, a bundle of views and persuasions. The Bible to these gentry is a noise of wax which everybody may shape just as he pleases. Beloved, beware of this falling into this state of mind. For if you do so, I boldly assert that you are not a Christian at all. For the spirit which dwells in believers hates falsehood and clings firmly to the truth. How interesting that everywhere else in the New Testament that we see this exhortation of stand firm or stand fast speaks of standing fast in the faith and in the gospel which we've had proclaimed. Just a couple for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Galatians 5, 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom or liberty by which Christ has made us free. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. read it recently with my children in the Action Bible. And you have some men who'd had favor by the Lord in the midst of the eyes of the king, And then one day, King Nebuchadnezzar has this great idea that he's going to make this statue of gold some 90 feet high, 20 feet wide. He's going to call all of the governors and satraps and rulers to come. And at the sound of the orchestra, they're to bow down before this thing. And anyone who doesn't bow down will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so he gives the call for the orchestra to sound. Everybody bows, but three guys, three Judeans. And he says, guys, maybe you didn't understand. I'm not telling you to, like, deny Yahweh, the God of of the Jews or of Israel, but just do this, okay? Just do this for me, okay? We're bros, I like you guys, just bow down. No, we're not gonna do that. Okay, if you don't bow down, you're gonna burn. Let me just put it that way. And here's what they answered. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. And you know the story. Cranks that fire up seven times. The guards pushing the three Jews in there, they burn. And as they're in the midst, as they walk in on their own accord, there's a fourth standing there with them, whose appearance is like the Son of Man. I believe it's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. You guys, the time is coming and has actually come now where we're being able to ask, we're being asked to bow down to all forms of idols. And only those who know the truth, the gospel, are going to even know 
that bowing is not an option. I love 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Spurgeon says, two things are wanted in a good soldier, steadiness under fire and enthusiasm during a charge. The first is the more essential in most battles, for victory often depends upon the power of endurance, which makes a battalion of men into a wall of brass. We want the dashing courage which can carry a position by storm that will be used up uh, in the second characteristic, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But in the commencement of the attack and at critical points all throughout the campaign, the most essential virtue to victory is for a soldier to know how to keep his place, how to stand firm. Stand firm. Be brave is our third exhortation. The J.B. Phillips says, live like men. I like that translation. Ken Graves' voice is good for that one. Live like a man. Or if you've got the ESV, live like a, or act like men. This is the only place in the New Testament that brave is translated this way. Men, don't you like it? It's that, it's that call, a summons, an exhortation. Present active imperative, it's time. I remember when we were going through a period in Corvallis that may still be there where, you know, guys are actually wearing girls' jeans and tight and rolled up and, you know, just like, dude. And we'd been listening to Ken Graves at the time and Russell had heard Ken say, be a man, right? And so he's, this is Russell, he's what, a year old at the time or a year and a half and he starts going, be a man. And he'd tell this to all the all the kids and all the people in Corvallis, be a man. Behave like men. Remember, the context of this is that the Corinthians were behaving like babies. They weren't even able to get a proper diet of the word. How sad it is to see a 17-year-old still on the bottle. This exhortation is meant to counter immaturity in the Corinthians' faith. It was time to act like responsible adults. I like the King James Version. Quit you like men which can be confusing because he's actually telling you to act like men. <laughs> Quit you like men. Men are supposed to be courageous. We are engaged in a war against the forces of evil and it is imperative that we play the part of men. Clark says, the terms in this verse are all military. Watch, be on your guard, lest you be surprised by the enemy. Stand fast in the faith, keep your ranks, do not be disorderly. Be determined to keep your ranks unbroken. Keep close together. Quit yourself like men. When you are attacked, do not flinch. Maintain your guard. Resist. Press forward. Strike home. Keep compact. Conquer. Be strong. If one company or division be opposed by too great a force of the enemy, strengthen that division and maintain your position. Summon all your courage. Sustain each other. Fear not, for fear will enervate you. Men and women and children should bring this dimension to bear on their Christian experience. Be courageous. Christian manliness is a great virtue. Within the church, it's a beautiful virtue. Be like men, act like men, be courageous, be strong. Be strong. Ken Graves, be strong. Now with all of these imperatives, 
we must ask, how am I going to do these things? Rory, that was one great motivational speech that Sunday. (laughs) Do this, do that, you must. But how? Why even? Where does my strength come from? These exhortations are not to be separated from the power that comes to carry them out, nor are they to be separated from the purpose for which they're to be carried out, which we've learned for the glory of God among all nations. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I will lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? To be strong, to act like a man. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We derive our strength from God. It is a chronicle of despair simply to be told, be strong. So you watch out for those motivational self-health messages coming from the pulpit that tell you just to do stuff. And you'll have a healthy marriage. You'll have a healthy relationship with your kids. You guys, it's lacking power. It's divorce from the power. And it's no different than Mormon, Buddhist, Islamic doctrine. Our strength comes from the Lord. And our motivation and our purpose for doing it comes for his glory and comes for his purpose. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You can tell the flag to stand firm and look strong as it sits sits limply down the flagpole. But when the wind comes and blows it, it comes to life. And we too need the blowing of the wind of the Spirit to be the power in our lives, the wind in our sails. Be strong. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that there's a battle going on. It's not against flesh and blood, but against, it's a spiritual battle against forces of wickedness. And he tells us to stand and to do all that we can do to stand in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's his power, guys. It's for him. And having done all to stand, he says in Ephesians 6, stand. Stand in his might. Psalm 31, 24 says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. But you know what, as I read through that whole psalm, I went back to verse three and I saw the purpose was this. Psalm 31, three says, for you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. What is the purpose of us being of courage to have our hearts strengthened? For his glory, for his name's sake. And then down in verse 16, make your face shine upon your servant and save me. Finish the verse out, people. For your mercy's sake. Hebrews 11.32, this is from the Hall of Faith. It's one of the most exciting chapters in the New Testament epistles. He says, okay, I've listed all these people who made these bold stands in the faith and in the strength of the Lord one more shall I say, the time would fail me to t- tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, 
turned to flight, the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, church, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So we are exhorted by Paul to be steadfast and be watchful and to be courageous and to act like men. Middle schoolers act like men. High schoolers act like men. Video game playing dads act like men. Old men act like men. Women of the church be courageous like men. Children be courageous like men. For what purpose? We have a mission. And all of those brave guys that we've read stories about in Fox's Book of Martyrs and DC Talks, Jesus Freaks and whatever else, they are not made complete without us. 2,000 years ago before Jesus ascended, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I have a commission. I have a mission for you. And they went. And Paul himself made it to the outer edges of Europe, to Spain and to France. He was beheaded in the European Rome. By God's grace, those missions, that gospel made it across on boat to the United States. There's a David Brainerd who's preaching the gospel to the Native Americans. There's the Methodists who preached the gospel to my Omaha Indian heritage. They were Christians. They were believers by the grace of God. The gospel made its way over here by wagon to Prineville, Oregon. Praise God. But you know what? There's a people group up in Nepal. There's people groups in India by the thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and thousands of people who do not know Jesus and they don't even know. Their chief end is to glorify God. Not only do they need redemption for their sins, but they've been created in the image of God to bring him much glory and praise for his name's sake. Be strong, be courageous, be steadfast in the faith, be watchful. The mission is still there. The mission is still there. The fifth exhortation in verse 15, we are almost done here. Let all that you do be done with love. How significant is it that this do everything in love follows these exhortations to be strong? It's not so much a fifth exhortation as it's the very seasoning by which all of the other ingredients fall into the bowl of the recipe. It's possible for us to be on guard and to be firm and to be courageous and strong and nearly militaristic, but to lack love. Morris says it in manliness, Paul's not looking for aggressiveness or self-assertion, but the strength that shows itself in love. That's a lot harder than just being a tyrannical leader. It's true manliness shows itself in love. Paul's concerned with the all-pervading nature of the Christian's love. Nothing we do is outside of its scope. Love is more than an accomplishment of the Christian actions. It's the very atmosphere in which the Christian lives and moves and has 
his being. Paul spoke to these same Corinthians a few chapters ago, telling them that no matter what we do, even if it's giving our body to be burned or all of our goods to feed the poor, if we don't have love, we're counterproductive. Be strong, be courageous in love. If it is truth that prevents us from degenerating into some kind of soppy sentimentalism, it is love on this end that prevents our truth from sliding into a rigid dogmatism. And the scriptures are perfectly clear and perfectly balanced. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, Paul calls the church in Corinth and the church in Prineville to stability, maturity, and charity for the glory of God. Johnny, come on up. We're going to worship and we're going to take communion. But I want our motivation to come from Jesus, our example, that true leader who never acts, 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 never asks us to do something that he himself hasn't done. That's a shepherd. The sheep will never go farther than the shepherd goes, amen? Our shepherd watched. And as we come to the table to take communion, let's consider his example. And let's consider his perfection in these areas. That Zekers is gonna come help us out this morning. <laughs> Let's consider what he's done in his victory. And let's receive today the power to live that similar life of victory here today in Prineville. Jesus watched, Matthew 26, 38, when he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus watched and he watched in prayer. Jesus stood fast in the faith after three strong temptations. Jesus finally said to Satan, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus was brave. Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that after his Galilean ministry, he steadfastly set his gaze to go to Jerusalem. There's bravery in that because he knew what was waiting him. He prayed in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was strong. In Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them with, as one with authority and not as the scribes. He was strong in that he bore his cross and he went out to the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. He was strong even though he was in agony. He prayed more earnestly then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Everything he did, he did in love. John records that he loved his own who were in the world, that he loved them to the end. And Jesus prayed over the disciples. I've loved them as you have loved me. Let's come to the table during this last song and you can come and grab the communion elements and go and ponder the, the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that is this broken symbol of the new covenant. Shed the blood for the remission of our sins, sealing the covenant of salvation by grace through faith.
and you ponder those things of Jesus' example to us in all of these ways and cry out for the strength to live for him in all of these practical ways by the power of the Spirit to all the nations for the glory of God.